I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. While there is no limit to the kinds of resources and materials that can be used to support the learning of young children, it's hard to argue that the most important of all is books. The research is clear that immersing children in pre-literacy experiences such as reading with a trusted adult has dramatically positive impacts for them throughout their lives. It's been a heavy year for the early education sector, so we're going this fortnight with a lighter look at children's uh, books and ask which children's books should every early education service have. But before we get to that, we do unfortunately have to take a look at the much less fun federal budget and the opposition's uh, budget in reply speech. Joining me to do that as quickly as we can so we can get to the fun stuff is uh, just Leanne this fortnight. Hi, Leanne. Hello, Liam. So probably our preeminent budget analyst um, has, I don't know if this is a reflection on her opinion of the quality of the budget itself, but she's sunning herself on a beach in... uh, Byron Bay, I think, is it somewhere? Yeah, she definitely made herself unavailable for this episode. And um, I don't think, I think she just had no interest in the topic. I think it's very possible. Look, well, I think what we can say is I think we'll we'll, we'll get into some very solid analysis, obviously, obviously at the end. But um, you can always check out Lisa's Twitter feed for a fairly unfiltered view about what she thinks about most things, let alone the federal budget. Be might as well wind her timeline back to, to last week. Um, well, maybe we should just limit this to two things, Liam. Maybe just two things. <laughs> I think, I think, in the spirit of uh, Lisa not being with us, that's probably a very good idea. Um, so, what I thought we'd do, we've got we the uh, for those who were listening or watching last uh, last week, I think weeks are going by very quickly. But we had uh, last Tuesday the federal government deliver their budget. Obviously, a really unprecedented budget in terms of a being delivered in October. Most budgets are sort of delivered uh, to the parliament. In I think it's like March and April, uh, or sometimes May, we can sort of get back to. Um, but due to obviously COVID-19 and, and what's been happening in the community, that's been pushed back to now. Uh, and then we had on Thursday the budget in reply speech. So the opposition uh, has the opportunity to sort of reply to the government's budget and set out their own sort of policy agenda, what they would put in their budget. Um, so I think we probably can uh, split it into two things. It won't. I don't think it's going to take us very long to discuss the federal government's budget in relation to early education because there really was not a lot in it no no not no at all. and and it was it was almost like a um it was almost like a, a a big plot of sand or snow there was nothing in it there was nothing in it look so there was the already announced sort of relief packages uh particularly some continuing extension for victoria but nothing certainly around um the big push we've been seeing for free access to early education so the return of the free system we saw uh back in april uh, through to about July, so certainly nothing along those lines, and no changes to the childcare subsidy or family eligibility. Some of the tweaks they've been doing, um, you know, additional uh, the increased additional absences, um, the relaxing of the activity test for you know a very small and narrow group of families will continue. But there was no sort of sense that early education was a big priority in this budget. I think was there, Leanne? I, there wasn't, and I saw um, something today from. Uh, the Prime Minister, which said, well, um, actually the tax cuts are supposed to be um, spent on uh, childcare. That was they, they were his. That was his position. And I, I sort of got the feeling that it was like when you go to a, um, a party and you realise you've forgotten the present and you sort of 
rifle down in the bottom of your bag and find a box of chocolates and give those to the person whose birthday it is. It was like completely <laughs> forgotten, but then he found another way to kind of package something else in a that was completely inadequate and say, well, I really did think about it and this is what it was for. So I, it, it was just such a, an oversight. It's just unbelievable, really, isn't it? And I and I think at one stage you said, let's do um, a special episode on the budget and then realising that there was actually nothing to talk about. I know we have had a bit of a tradition with the podcast of either doing one that night or one quite quickly. It very, very quickly determined that, you know, even for us who could probably talk for an hour about almost nothing in early education, would struggle to sort of get beyond the 10-minute mark on on what was announced, but it just yeah, seemed... and they, they were all every every time a budget uh, went down. I remember when Lisa and I were working together at community childcare. It was always you know a big deal, state and Commonwealth budgets. We would always put something out. We'd spend time, kind of you know, pouring over all of those things and developing something. I do remember parking by the side of the road at one stage to <laughs> sign off on something um, because it was you know it was really vital information it was of interest but i don't know whether we would have even done that (laughs) it was just there truly was nothing in it it was there was just nothing to see was there you would have done something hilarious like the short side the newsletter would have come out and it would have been what does Elliot, what, you know, what is, what's in the budget for early education would have been the huge headline and then there's sort of been a one line, not much, the end. I would have loved that. <laughs> we, we probably would have enjoyed doing that, sadly, because we would have been devastated by it. And I, I do feel devastated by this as well. There's so many other areas that have been given money and we know it's hard times. We know we'll all be kind of printing money for years to come. But this is, it's just nothing. It's not, it's just a big fat nothing, really. Literally isn't it? nothing. Um, mm. The only things I'll point out is so I think what, what sort of emerged since the budget was handed down last week is that so Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, has said there will be potentially some budget announcements and some even some reforms in the next budget, so in uh, which, which I guess we would be anticipating would be handed down around the normal time of sort of mid 2021. Um, you know, which I guess if we just take them at their word, that that's a good thing. It's hard to understand why they wouldn't be able to do something now, but let's, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt for that. But what kind of annoyed me was alongside that, he said between now and then they'll be running what he was sort of calling an unofficial awareness campaign for the sector. So trying to make the case to taxpayers about why I would assume there would be additional investment in early education, which just kind of frustrated me because no other... You know, certainly if we looked at some of the male-dominated sectors that have been doing pretty well out of the government's uh, COVID-19 response and the budget, you know, they wouldn't be as dismissive to say, you know, we'll run an unofficial awareness campaign for the mining sector or for manufacturing. It just wouldn't happen. It's really dismissive and I think just sort of speaks to this lack of interest and this lack of willingness to engage with yeah. you know, these issues. And if everybody gets on board, then maybe we'll think about putting some money into it. Like, it, it's, yes... And however many campaigns have been run on raising awareness around early childhood education, it's still such a mixed message, isn't it? Exactly. And, you know, I guess I guess we'll need to see what this unofficial awareness campaign looks like and what it means. Um, but at least from the government side of things, we are going to be waiting, I think, quite a while before we get any sense of what 
they're planning from a policy perspective. Are we thinking, you know, are we are we going to see some sort of major reform of the childcare subsidy? Are we going to see some sort of return to free early education? It seems unlikely, but at the moment we have very little to go on. Yeah, and we already know the slogan. How good is early childhood education? How good is ECAC? Yeah, <laughs> well, federal government, we are available as brand consultants. <laughs> If, if you need right. to be getting onto us, exactly. But I did, I did think that the two key messages that um, that came through from what was actually sort of, you know, put out there was get a job and have a high-paying job. They were the two. They were the two things. They were the two messages for Australia's women. I thought, and that you have some very nice roads to drive on. Mm. We can get a job on the roads. Get a job on the roads. I mean, I suppose yeah. educators can use roads as well. So really, there's something in that budget for. For everyone. For everyone. But completely, completely overlooking the fact that you need a job to pay for childcare. And yes. if we're looking at it from that, you know, if we're looking at it from a purely childcare perspective. And what we do know is that it's much easier to get a job when you have childcare. <laughs> so, you know, yep. anyway. Anyway, well, we, it's probably worth turning our attention now to Anthony Albanese, so the leader of the opposition. He delivered the budget and reply speech last Thursday, and that definitely has a lot more to discuss. It's still uh, early days, so we've sort of had the speech. Um, one of the frustrations for me has been that Labor's not put a lot in detail, like on their website, or you normally have some press releases. They sort of seem to be relying on just the speech, but if we, if we take what's in the speech, um, there was some... There's a couple of things I think we want to sort of point out here. One is that there's some really positive news here. Well, one, which is a more general point, which was this was the flagship centrepiece of Anthony Albanese's budget in reply speech. Uh, you know, early education being such a strong focus at such an important political event can't be underestimated. Um, I feel like I'd be right in saying, Leanne, I think it's the first time it's been such a big centrepiece of um, a budget in reply speech like that, I think, hasn't it? I think so. Yes, I think you would be right. I, I mean, I think the only bigger messages we've had around um, childcare and early childhood education have been from those in government. So, yes, I would say definitely. Although, we'd be happy to be stand, uh, stood corrected there, wouldn't we? That's right. Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email if I'm wrong. Um, don't do that every time I'm wrong because you'll be spending the rest of your time, to, the rest of your life doing that. Never. Um, so this is really, so Labor are really running strongly on this. So they've obviously, you know, are sensing or have done polling or are looking at what's happening in the community and are seeing this as a really live issue. And from an advocacy perspective, that's really positive. So separate to the detail of the policy, which I might spend a bit of time talking about the pros and cons out, uh, that's a really positive thing. And from an advocacy perspective, we should be um, happy that Labor are continuing uh, what was a pretty strong focus in the lead up to the 2019 election with policies around early education, uh, that they're continuing in this term in, in opposition, which is great. But the detail of what they've announced is that they will uh, be increasing the maximum amount of uh, subsidy under the CCS from 85 to 90% and removing the annual cap on the CCS for families earning more than $190,000. So basic, and then they're also changing the uh, the amount that so people who are earning less than that will obviously will get between ninety um, you know, and zero percent depending on when they reach the maximum sort of income level. Uh, as you can tell from how I've had to explain it, they haven't got rid of the complexity of the system, so that's going to be one of the negatives yeah. I'm going to bring out. But yeah. um, essentially, if we sort of ignore the big details, 
ev- everyone would be better off under this system um, in terms of families. So uh, all of the families would be receiving more subsidy than they're currently uh, earning. Uh, what we haven't seen, unfortunately, is any changes to the activity test. Uh, now, that may be something that's announced later, but it certainly wasn't announced as part of this. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, no uh, announcements or, or policy around support for early childhood educators. Um, mm. So I think, you know, I might, I might sort of give my quick views on this first, Leanne, and then uh, it would be great to hear your views. I know Lisa, Carl and I were madly uh, tweeting to ourselves about this in a message server. You were unavailable that night, I think. So we were feeling a bit pessimistic and normally you're there to sort of buoy us up with optimism. So I'm wondering whether you want to do that with me tonight. But my view on this okay, no, is that, yes, it's really positive that Labor are going with this. I am a bit frustrated that it's sort of being referred to as this huge economic reform mm. when I just don't think it is. I think increasing you know, the, the current 85% top level of subsidy to 90% and changing some of the numbers in the existing system, I just think that's a pretty low bar for economic reform. It doesn't... The the, the key thing for me, the biggest issue with the workplace activity... Uh, sorry, with the childcare subsidy has been the workplace activity test. And unfortunately, you know, this the Labor have come out and called this... Um, called this sort of economic policy uh, the Working Families Childcare Boost, which... You know, to me, is almost worse than the jobs for families package. It just—it seems to be still in that mindset that this is, you know, this is about, you know, working families, you know, getting them in to, you know, back into the to the labour force, which obviously has some feminist implications, and I'm not oblivious to those. But it really, it's not reforming the current system. It's fiddling with the current system. You know, reform would be saying the seat, the childcare subsidy, the work activity test isn't working for our modern approach to early education and workforce participation. We need a brand new system and I want to start outlining what that is. So I think there is some disappointment from me that it is Labor seems to be accepting the premise of the current system and there doesn't seem to be this big vision going, you know, there's a there's a simpler, there's an easier, there's a clearer way to do this. And I think that to me is a really missed opportunity. How do you sort of feel about it all? Yeah, look, I think um, I did come in very late on the the conversation that um, the three of you were having and I just sort of said well they're not in government they're not likely to be in government anytime soon so really does it matter at all and I suppose that does sound a bit pessimistic but that's even more cynical than me yeah I know this time Um, but the opportunity I saw was that maybe that's thank goodness because I don't think it would be valuable to see this sort of policy in place because I think you're right it's complex it wouldn't be a big enough change to make people say okay there's a real commitment here to early well there's no there's no real commitment to early childhood education whereas I think that just let's just sort of shuffle that aside and say okay here's the opportunity now for Labor to actually think much bigger and create something that is you know, mind-blowingly innovative rather than this um, sort of little tinker-tinker. And I would imagine even if, you know, suddenly something happened and Labor was given the opportunity to govern from the beginning of 2021, they wouldn't do this. They'd just leave it as it is because everything else would be happening. So, I, and again, like I think that's probably sounding very cynical, but my feeling is just let's just blank this and, let's have something really special for early childhood education. Let's think about what what children and families actually need as they're moving out of, hopefully, um, beyond COVID. 
I think that's the thing, and I think that's what's missing from it is that sense of vision. It's that sense of going, there's a different way to do this. Um, I know Lisa was sort of talking to me about, and she has you know, a much bigger profile than, than, than me on, uh, on Twitter, so was receiving a lot more commentary on her commentary. And a lot of the feedback she was getting, you know, maybe from Labour supporters, but also sort of policy people who are watching were saying, you know, this is good policy. It's, it's, it's much better than we're getting now. Um, and there was this kind of desire to say, look, why can't we, you know, why let's celebrate the positive. And I, and I do think, you know, like I said, it's great that Labour are, are focusing on this and are thinking about it. And one of the things that, again, because of the slightly strange nature of how Labour have done this, so they've had Anthony Albanese's speech, but haven't put out a lot of information beyond that. They, there was a vague mention that they would also be going to the Productivity Commission, our old friend Leanne, to look at, <laughs> basically saying (laughs) no more no more more. um to look at you know extending that 90 percent subsidy to all income levels um and sort of trying to say that that would be a move towards a universal system i sort of don't want to get it maybe this is another episode we could actually it might be worth spending a bit of time talking with some policy people about what does universal mean that to me still isn't a universal system it's still reliant on a work activity test unless they're anticipating that that will also be part of the discussion, but they haven't mentioned that. Um, but for me, the way I sort of thought about it on the night and the way I was sort of trying to articulate what this would look like when I was talking about it for this episode was, you know, the, the way I would be pitching it to sort of families would be, you know, it's not reform as long as you still have to be on the phone to Centrelink to get this sorted out until we can see a future for early education that doesn't involve Centrelink. And and I think one some of the feedback I did receive was sort of people going, "This, the, it's so this the system is so complex. You can't expect Labor to come out with a reform plan that that completely ditches the childcare subsidy and moves to an entirely new system." I do have some right. sympathy for that. I am a realist. I I do think it's important that voices like ours are raised that says we can do better and that we need to think beyond just the getting bogged down in the detail. I I, I do understand that. The system is insanely complex, but part of me wonders why the opposition, who could very easily point the finger of blame at the fact the system is complex at the people sitting opposite them, the government, you know, what I, I think when I think about what I wanted to hear or what I would have liked to have heard from Anthony Albanese or, you know, any Labour leader would be to stand up and go, the system is incredibly complex due to decades of the inability to get this right, including on our side, but for the last seven years, this government has made the system even more complex. You know, if we are elected, we will commit to fixing it. It will take time. It is going to be difficult and it's incredibly complex. But we want to move to a system where the child, where a child accessing early education and a parent more able to, you know, flexibly work does not rely on being on hold to Centrelink for, you know, an hour to sort out your subsidy. We don't think that's the right way to do this. It's acknowledging the complexity and acknowledging that it will be difficult, blaming the other side for it, which politically seems very smart but saying there is a different way we can do this and it will take time, but we commit to starting that process tonight. Yeah, I, I agree totally with what you're saying. And actually, I, I wrote down exactly that about short-termism and why why can't we actually commit to a, a much longer plan with a proper evaluation framework and, you know, let's commit to 10 years of that. And you know what? If it doesn't work after 10 years, okay, we, we've we've proven that point it's not changing anything so let's do something different but in the meantime why can't we have a great plan of free why why have 90 percent subsidy like you say and the administration on that is going to be horrendous 
So, and it's not universal. How can something be a universal 90% subsidy? I don't understand. Well, I do understand it, but I don't think it works. And I, I, I agree. Let's have a proper plan. I think how many years ago did Kate Ellis say we need to unscramble the egg? Unscramble that egg. And that's what Labor was saying. So why doesn't Labor mm. commit to actually unscrambling that egg? And I think that if they asked us, we would just say, make it free, um, you know, keep it simple, employ qualified people, pay them. Well, okay, maybe we have 10 demands, but <laughs> just, <laughs> I guess we know what works. So why don't we just say we're going to do it and, and commit to that and really measure it properly? And it's just the, the thing that kind of infuriates me is it's very hard to see why people are defending the current system. It's complex. It's crazy. But there was a news article that came out um, today, Wednesday, as we're recording this, that um, the the report on uh, the subsidy and, and how much families had paid in fees for the quarter leading up to March, so basically before COVID happened, um, demonstrated that you know fees had dramatically increased above and beyond the subsidy increase. So... All this energy and time spent, you know, implementing, embedding the childcare subsidy, and it hasn't brought fees down because the system we have means that it will always, it'll always exceed, you know, indexation and you know whatever increases we put onto the mm-hmm. um, to the to the hourly rate and all these kind of things because it's a market based model. So the you know that that's that that's always going to be the case. So Labor's plan to increase yeah. the numbers on some of the percentages won't solve that problem. Um, and it just it, it's very hard to work out. Like that's not they're not good headlines for the government. They're not they and they demonstrate that the childcare subsidy isn't doing one of the things that the government said it wanted to do with it, which was you know decrease out of pocket costs for families. Yeah, and I think all of these things that happen around, you know, all of the fiddling and the complexity really just changes the focus of what the real problem is. And the real problem is that we cannot decide in this country who should pay for this. And so because of that, there's all these incredibly complex plans and administrative arrangements and policy, and it actually focuses the energy in the wrong place because we know what works we've got the evidence of what works we know what would make a difference for children for families for the workforce for women we know all that it's there but all of this is just kind of like a magical trick that diverts the gaze from the real problem which is who is going to pay that's what it always comes down to, which is why, you know, the budget speeches and the budget in reply speeches, though, have expressed some frustration with them. From an advocate perspective, they are important to follow and they're important mm. to, to keep track of. So we've gone way beyond the, the allotted 10 minutes I gave for this, but I think it was yeah, we have, a worthwhile we? discussion. Really, I think Lisa would be proud of us. I think, I think she'd be. <laughs> and I think we did more than two things. But I think there was, you know, in terms of the kind of advocacy work, like I think this has just proven that, we've got to kind of go big and, you know, if Labor's just not getting it, then we've just got to go big and we've got to, we've got to dream up the fairy castle and just go for it. I'm entirely on board with that. Well, we'll include some links in the show notes for some analysis from, uh, you know, the, from the stuff we talked about tonight, including some great pieces from the conversation. You'll be happy to know, Leanne. Um, 
but always. <laughs> always, always. And the Mitchell Institute and the Grattan Institute as well. So there's some really there's some really good stuff there that sort of does analyse it from different different um, perspectives. But let's move on now to I think to the fun part of tonight. So we should say, Leanne, one of the impetuses for the conversation we're going to have now, which is around which children's books we think should be in every early education service, was that, you know, uh, just over three years ago in August 2017, we also had an episode where Lisa couldn't make it. I think we had to chuck out whatever we'd planned on talking about. And we just said, look, let's just do something light and pretty fun. And we talked about what our favorite children's authors were. Uh, And we had a great time sort of going back and forth, uh, just, you know, just talking about our own nostalgic remembrances of our own favorite books as children how much we enjoyed reading them to our own children the importance of literacy um and and those kind of things we did have a lovely discussion around just i think from a pedagogical perspective the importance of reading and books so i really would recommend people who want a longer discussion about that to go back to that episode the episode is called children's book week you'll be able to find it in our on our website and in in our um our listening guide but it might be you know maybe really quickly leanne it might we might repeat some of the stuff from that episode but to be fair it was three and a half years ago um you know you i know, can't you, believe that it's, it's it's a terrifying thought isn't it i don't know how yeah. we've kept this show going this long but it but it, but it somehow is um <laughs> Because you know, we just keep talking. We just keep talking. Whether anyone's listening or not anymore, I've got no idea. Um, but, you know, for you, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a teacher, as an early childhood professional, um, you know, as a soon-to-be doctor, you know, what to, what, what, what um, you know, when you think about, you know, books and children and reading, um, you know, what, what, what's the importance there for you? Oh, well, I think for, I think it's a, a whole sort of of life thing for my family and for me as an early childhood teacher all those years ago and continuing to think how important language is, how important reading and print is and how what a wonderful life you can have um, by being able to read and, you know, expose yourself and children to to books. It's just like the best ever, right? That's and and it is the foundation of everything. And I think that we are treated to some of the most beautiful artwork in children's books that takes you on a journey through many art galleries um, that is just augments the print. And it was funny because the other day uh, our adult kids were around and we keep a shelf in the lounge room. They haven't given me grandchildren yet, which I can't believe. But we keep a shelf in the lounge room with all of their old books on it, or mini shelves, and they started pulling them out and reading them. And I just and they could remember all of those beautiful books and stories. So that's probably not what you asked me, Liam, but that's what I've told you. No, it's it's lovely. And look, and I don't have a huge amount more to add. You know, I think from from the you know, educational perspective, there is an endless abundance of research saying how important um, books and you know a tr- a loved and respected adult reading you know mm-hmm. alongside a child can have dramatic impacts not just on you know the sort of um, you know executive function stuff around pre literacy and pre numeracy and all those kind of things, but also to well being. Just that idea that mm-hmm. someone is devoting that time you know with you, sitting alongside you, reading and sharing that time with you um, mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah, and I, I just, uh, relating to another project, I was asked to talk about um, 
you know, what what was something in this like chaotic world that is COVID where families are trying to um, teach older children at home and, and all of those things, what can people do? And I said, well, just do not worry about, don't put your head into worrying about all the development and all those sorts of things. Just sit and spend some time reading and have a great experience to build that relationship um, and have just have some time where everybody's really present and that's in reading a book. I think there's no better better opportunity than that. It's about that relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. So, so important. So let's get to the fun part, I think, of the discussion. So the way um, we wanted, I think, to tackle this was we're going to suggest three books each uh, and we're going to suggest one for each of the sort of classic general age groups we often see in early education. So infants, toddlers and preschoolers. And I want to put a small asterisk there saying that, you know, that those age groups are largely, um, you know, sort of made up and they've just put a sit embedded in the sector for reasons that probably wouldn't stand up to a whole bunch of scrutiny. But that's the the most common sort of approach you see in early education is that it seemed like it just a pretty general way to break it up. So I think we're just going to take it in turns. I'm going to be the generous host, Leanne, and let you go first each time. And then if you've stolen my pick, I've got a couple of backup ones. But um, we'll do we'll pick one each from, you know, for for infants, for that, that nursery age group, that's your zero to two, then toddlers, and then preschoolers. Then I think, I'm assuming you had as much trouble as me with this, land picking one. You probably have a couple of, um, you know, yeah. runners up. Or, and we can, <laughs> once we've each selected our top one, we can then, you know, uh, we can just go through some of our, you know, honourable mentions. How does that sound? Yes, definitely. Sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, so Leanne, we're in the infant space. The bookshelf is set up. We've got the brand new service ready to go. What's the first book that has to be on that shelf for for the littlest children? Well, I was thinking about, and I think I probably suggested um, a book by these authors uh, for in our 2017 episode, Janet and Alan Alberg. And I think I probably suggested Peepo at the time. This time I have selected their book, Each Peach, Plare, <laughs> Each Peach Pear Plum, um, and also the Baby's Catalogue, which is a beautiful book of all the things that babies have in, in their lives. And I think what I love about this, these authors and this, and sadly Janet Alberg has passed away, but these these authors is the way, the rhythm of the language that they use. And the, the illustrations are lovely. They're so beautiful. But it's that it's that rhythm of that language that you would have with a baby, you know, that each peach, pear, plum, I spy, Tom, thumb. So everybody, I think everybody can remember the words of these books and they just stay with you. So that's my infant baby pick oh what about you, such a Leah? good choice no such a good choice i'm i'm a i'm sorry i do want to say though i listened back to that episode uh today just to make sure we weren't trying to cover too much of the same ground and you didn't actually select you didn't have uh the allens on there oh. um, i want to say you okay. did you had um alison lester oh, anthony yeah. brown and bob graham which we spent about 20 minutes talking about how good bob graham is because <laughs> i entirely agreed with you Oh, <laughs> so again, what did you choose for infants? What was your? So again, this was incredibly difficult. One thing I want to say is, I think um, again, one of these reasons these distinctions between age groups are arbitrary. I think you can read all all of the books we're going to suggest tonight, and most books can be read with all children. But I think there are some that are just perfect for that age group, and we've we've hit upon the same thing. I think Leanne, which is that idea of of rhythm 
and a particular approach to how the words encourage you to say them. So the ones I the ones I was sort of batting around in my head, and again finding it very difficult to pick one, um, involved when I think about the way I've read them, um, either to my own children or to children in centres. I often end up singing them, whether they were meant to be sung or not. So the one so the one I chose was um, "We're Going on a Bear Hunt" by Michael Rosen. Oh, yeah. Um, I've read that that book so many times to my own children as infants, but to infants in classrooms. And there is the the book just encourages you to 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 sing those ones. I'm not going to suggest. I'm not going to sorry. Uh, um, uh, make listeners have to uh, listen to me sing it now. But um, you know that that rhythm and the repetition and the engagement that people have and those really um, those double page illustrations that I think there's there's a lot to look at in there. But it's, it's such a good way to engage you know, the youngest of children in that, um, that it just, there's something, uh, there's some sort of magic with how those books are written where they yeah. just demand to be sung, even though there's nothing on the page that says you have to sing these words. But I just remember, I, I, I can almost remember the first time I picked it up as an educator it was the first time I um, came across these books before I had children and, and, and sung those words without reading them. I'm, not, mm. I'm still not sure why. Well, they're just asking to be sung, aren't they? And there's the beautiful rhythm there and the backwards and forwards. It's just, it's lovely. And it is that, you know, it is that kind of um, serve and return language as well, isn't it? Where it it can be chanted and, and said in, yeah, it's a lovely, beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. And it invites engagement. So that's that we can't go over it. Yeah. So we've got to go under it. Um. All right, what did you have to ruthlessly cull And all from... that great maths and science language there. That's right, all exactly. That, yes. It's yes. all there, over, under, through. Yeah. Um, now, Leanne, what did you have to ruthlessly cull from your list? What were the... Look, I, I just was very narrow and I stuck with, with those guys because I think that they, well, with that the husband and wife team and just, it was really just all of their books. I thought I, I thought you couldn't go wrong with any Janet and Alan Alberg story. So I, I was true and dedicated to them only. So you just got a shelf full of these yep. ones. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. That's you, right. Leanne, you do you. That's totally <laughs> okay. Um, well, the, what, the ones I I had a lot on here. I've, I've made a quick list on my sort of note-taking device of choice and I've sort of called it out to my favourites. Um, one was very similar for the, to The Bear Hunt and the approach to reading and the approach to engagement with the reader is Where is the Green Sheep by Men Fox. Oh, um, yeah. There's just something so fun about that and something that the youngest of children understand. You know, I remember um, my daughter, her first birthday party was a green sheep cake because oh. she loved that. And, and, you know, even from, you know, the youngest of ages was, you know, identity was pointing out the sheep and, um, and was always, always shocked when, when we found the green sheep at the end. It was always a lovely uh, surprise. That book divides people, though. I know some it people does. really don't like it, do they? I know. Well, I'm going to talk about, actually, let's put a pin in there. Like, we're going to come back to that later because I'm going okay. to, one of my selections in the preschool, I'm going to talk about a controversial view about a, a beloved children's book that I, I'm not a huge fan of. Anyway, that's a, if you weren't planning to listen to the end of the episode now, if that doesn't hook you in. To, exactly. to, to stay to the preschool selection. <laughs> I don't know what will. Um, and then the other one's a slightly odd one because I think um, we th- there's a bit of you know there's there's always that you know there's always that um, debate about you know what's a quality book or is there you know is there such a thing as you know should children only have access to you know the highest sort of the most literate you know books or is there a place for you know the ones that you know maybe are five or ten dollars at 
you know, big W. Um, I have a very anti-elitist approach to book. I, my general sense is that if children are reading, that's a good thing. Um, I, I do like, as, as an adult, I like to be enjoying the book I'm reading too. So that's kind of my my bar for it. If I'm, if, if I'm not finding the book a slog um, to read through, because I think if I'm not enjoying it, then probably... You know, the child isn't as well. But I'm actually a huge fan of these. These, these books are everywhere. I'm sure they're very cheaply produced and, you know, um, and, you know, they're, they're not exactly, they're not going to win any, you know, best picture book of the year awards. But I really love, and the, the children I've read them to love them as well, the, the That's Not My series. So the ones that That's Not My Dinosaur, That's Not My Robot, oh, yes. you know, it's, it's skin yeah. is too. There's something about them. They do include the, the, the sensory, um, the sensory, uh, you know, a component to each page, but just the again, there is a sense of rhythm. It's just it's a very simple, you know, process. And then you know, that's not my dinosaur. That's not my dinosaur. And then at the end, they find the right one. It is it, all of my children. We I think well, we probably still got about twelve or thirteen of them around somewhere. But both of them just for went through a period of really being engaged with those books when they were under the age of two. So again, not going to win any probably literary awards, but I'm a big fan of them. Yeah, and I think it's always about sharing the enjoyment of that book. I remember there was this book that we read with our daughter when she was very young and we picked it up off a second-hand, um, you know, book sort of sale outside someone's house and it was called The Baby's Hotel and it was just oh. wrong. It, wasn't, <laughs> it was just a wrong book. But, you know, we love that book and we shared it so, so much. It was just – it was hilarious. <laughs> Yep. So, you know, sometimes there is a book that's wrong, but it's so wrong, it's right. So wrong, it's right. Mm. Uh, yep. I completely could not agree more. Mm. All right. Well, let's, I think I'm imagining, I don't know, we've, we've, uh, we've taken over, we've hijacked a service or something, Leanne, and we're stocking it from start to finish. So we're heading out of the, the infant space. We're heading into the, into the toddler room. So those very curious, very uh, engaged, very um, frustrated at the things they, they, they're not allowed to do toddlers. Um, We've got the bookshelf set up in the corner. What's the first book that's going on there for you? Well, this one is actually my recommendation for the A to Z of this author. And I would do an A to Z of every book that was written by Eric Carl. Oh, because, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because um, I think The Very Hungry Caterpillar, of course, is the most wonderful book. However, he wrote and did he illustrate? He did the illustrations. He did the illustrations too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, gosh, that was a, just a moment there where I thought, oh, maybe that's not right. He wrote, wrote and illustrated other books such as The Very Lonely Firefly, The Grouchy Ladybug, The Very Busy Spider, um, and Brown Bear, Brown many, Bear. Many, yeah, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, um, From Head to Toe. There's, and they are the most beautiful delightful illustrations that are full of color and full of you know just an incredible visual feast and I think that they are perfectly suited to um the 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 developing toddler very good choice Leanne Mm. well we're not stealing not stealing each other's choices so far so this is this is going well and the, the other thing that I was going to say, because I do love a museum, there's actually an Eric Carl Museum in Massachusetts. There is. Yes, yes. It's the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. Aww. So if anybody um, wants to go on, we will put that in the in the um, notes, hey, because there's a. it's just a fantastic um, 
website and it's not just uh, his picture books it's you know there's Morris Sendak and there's yeah, all sorts of lovely yeah. things and I just yeah I just sort of love the idea of a whole museum dedicated to children's book art what a wonderful thing I'm completely on board with that yes please um all right well my selection is to be honest you know not not only some of the most both heartbreaking and heartwarming children's book I've ever read it might be one of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming books I've read full stop um it genuinely I find it just very affecting and it is pitched perfectly for that toddler you know sense of you know that developing and um almost overwhelming empathy for um, other creatures and other, you know, the, the other people in their room. And I'm choosing um, Hunwick's Egg by Mem Fox. And oh, I, it's, I don't even know that. It's book. one Tell of me about it. it's one of Mem's lesser known works. I think I absolutely love it. It's particularly a big favourite of my son Elliot. But it's about um, I don't even know what, exactly what kind of creature Hunwick is. But I think he's like a um, He's like a mole rat or something, but he's this little cute creature with a long snout. And he finds this egg and he looks after it and he he's friends with it and he talks to it beautifully. And the other animals are very worried about him because clearly this egg is actually just a really round rock that's not actually an egg. And so the he, all his friends think that he's waiting for this egg to hatch so he can have a friend within it. And they're worried this egg's not going to hatch. It's never going to happen. And so you feel really sad for Helmick. He's formed this... And he you know, he, he sleeps next to the egg. He, when he goes out, he brings food back for the egg and he just, he's friend. He sit and in one of the best pages, you know, he just sits with the egg and watch the sun goes down and just talks to it. And the egg always listens to him. Um, and then, so you, so there's this sort of heartbreaking moment, you know, about, you know, towards the end of the story where you're going, this is a stone, it's not going to hatch. And then Hunwick, and then you sort of see Hunwick knows it's not an egg. He knows it's a stone. But it's the friend he's you know that he needs, and he know, and he's going to love it anyway. Um, and it's just, I don't know, Mem. She's some sort of crazy genius because that book is just incredible. And it particularly for toddlers, and with the toddlers I read it for, it just the, the sense of empathy they have for Hunwick and the, their understanding of why that relationship with the egg is so important. Um, it's just it, honestly one of my favourite books of all time, alone for children or not. I think you should have her around for dinner. I might have to. I don't think I'd be able to talk to her about Hunwick's egg. I think I'd burst into tears. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what would what did you have to? Um, what was on your sort of honourable mentions list? Well, I I went again with the same theme, and it was just every single other Eric Carle book. So it's just, <laughs> there's just so many of them that I I just thought, well, I can't direct people to anything else. It just has to be more Eric Carle books. And there's a fantastic list um, and a sort of graphic list of all of his books that he wrote, which I'm going to send the link to you, um, Liam, so that you can add it because then everybody can see all of those books in their great glory. We're going to have some very good links in the show notes tonight. Mm. Make sure mm. you check them out, everyone. Earlyeducationshow.com. All right. How about you? What was your Oh, list? that's right. I've got to list my, uh, yeah. my, my backup. So... Just because I'm... Just because I'm not 
<laughs> that's right. Not, I'm not suggesting I was the only one that took this seriously, yeah, but that's but certainly not. Um, I so I obviously went for you know the the gut wrenching emotional drama of Hunwick's Egg for the toddlers, which I do think is important. But I but all of my backups are, are funny book because I do think with toddlers humor is a great way to get in with with um, books. Uh, so I I'm going to do a bit of your strategy, which is pick a particular series that um, have some great ones. But the um, the pig the pug series. Uh, just oh, yeah. to to a fault, hilarious and just brilliantly constructed by Aaron uh, Blaby, written and illustrated. Um, just you know, laugh out loud from start to finish. And then one of one of the sort of more modern authors that I'm I've sort of become recently a fan of in the last few years is John Klassen. Um He does a lot of books called um, "This Is Not My Hat" or "I Want My Hat Back." They're really incredibly straightforward, very dry but hilarious books. Um, they're yeah. almost impossible to describe, uh, you know, the, you know, over the, the audio format. I really recommend people go out and check them out, maybe grab them from your library first, but they are very, very straightforward. They're very easy for children to follow. And they also, there's a lot of sort of um, engagement that children can have in the book um, as people hunt down the various hats that have been stolen by various people. Oh, that sounds good. I have to check a couple of these things out because I think I've missed a few books. Well, until those, until you get those grandchildren, yeah, then you'll be back, back in the saddle getting new picture, yeah, picture but books. books. It doesn't matter. The children's books are for adults, aren't they? Exactly. It's very true. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's head out of the toddler room. Now we're heading into that crazy busy preschool room uh, again. We're going to start stocking that shelf from... From scratch, I was about to ask which book you've chosen, Leanne, but which huge selection of books from one author have you chosen um, for the preschool room? Well, I haven't actually chosen one author, and I did actually. You've mixed I it up. By, yeah, I went by your rules here, so I will just. Um, <laughs> one out of three is not bad. I, yeah, that's right. Um, I do love the book. I hope I didn't say this last time. The Hottest Boy Who Ever Lived. No, this is a new by, one. Yeah, by Anna, Anna Feinberg and Kim Gamble. And people will know Kim Gamble's name from the Tashi series if they've ever oh. read um, the, the Tashi series. Yes. And, yeah, so this is a, a father-daughter team um, and they created this book. And it's just, it's just a great book. It reminds me of maybe living in Scandinavia, not that I ever did, but it reminds me of living there. If I, if I had lived there, I would be reminded of it. <laughs> and, you know, it's also a nice story around being a bit different and um, being loved. You know, it's it's just, it's it's a great story and I really love it. So that is The Hottest Boy Who Ever Lived. Oh, that's a new one on me, so I'll have to, mm. I'll have to track that one down. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and again, I will sort of draw. I don't know why I'm talking about my kids so much tonight, but <laughs> we're uh, having a joke about it. And we were talking about the hottest boy who ever ever lived. And my middle one said, "Well, thank you." <laughs> really, <laughs> really. Classic, classic humour. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. All right. Well, my selection is so. I, my my thing with the preschool age group is I think you need books that are sort of engaging. There's a bit of audience participation involved. I tend to find those ones particularly because you're often you know, with the not fantastic ratios we have in early education or the not fantastic minimum ratios, you're often um, you, you're often reading to maybe a small group of children. I think I when I listened back to the to the episode we did back in 2017, um, I as as um, good I reminded myself that you know doing uh, reading a book to you know 22 children, I just don't think it's okay. You don't want to oh. be doing those. No, you don't want to be doing those big large groups. Um, you know, doing groups of two, three, four is okay, and 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 often you know the 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 
restrictions around what we were able to do in the preschool room mean that you may need to do it in small groups, which means participation is great so people can stay engaged and people get the opportunity to contribute. Um, so I'm going to choose what's become, again, a hugely popular book in our house and is a really different examples when it sort of came out you would think there's not a lot new to do with children's picture books but this really did something new and it's the book with no pictures by bj novak oh. have you heard of that one Leanne? i have not <gasps> it's so good i don't want to spoil it for you but which but it is just a book that there are no pictures it's only text uh, and the the sort of hook of it is is the book sort of says yeah you know he's telling children you know how books work is adults have to read what's on here so then it just proceeds to make adults the person reading the book have to say some very silly ridiculous things to make children laugh but oh, um, right. it's really really good there's a great um what i'll try and find is a youtube link of the author reading the book to a group of children uh in new york at a, at a public library i think and it's 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 a great example of how that book can be read but you know this book is really interactive it's really engaging preschoolers find it hilarious i find it hilarious uh it is my it has to be in every preschool room me. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm I'm gonna check that one out. <laughs> All right, what were your runners up, Leanne? Um, I did have some runners up and uh I, I went with kind of like a broad inclusion theme here because I thought that there were a lot of beautiful books that were written about um diversity and difference and being different. Uh so one of them was Sweetie. Oh yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is a really beautiful book about just being a little bit unique and a bit different and <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous illustrations. And then the other one I went with was I Am Brown by Ashok um Baba and Sandia Prabhat. And it I mean, they're all really just books around inclusion and advocacy and bringing to the attention of young children different ways of thinking and looking at things. And I I think that you know, what a wonderful time to share those stories with children as they're developing their feelings of, of social justice and and their thinking. Um, I mean, obviously that happens before that, but I think this is the time where you start to have these really in-depth conversations about social justice, about inclusion, diversity, all of those aspects of humanity. And these are great books for that purpose. No, books and stories are... Just about the best way, I think, to do that is yeah. you know, telling those stories. Um, well, I've sort of stuck with the comedy theme, Leanne. I'm feeling, you know, down there. I should, I didn't, I didn't do any worthy social justice titles, <laughs> but I entirely endorse all those. But um, there's a, there's some really great ones out there. Um, uh, you know, whoever you are is a, is a big is a, a big is still a big popular one in our house. Um, but I've stuck with, um, in particularly in terms of comedy and engagement, so getting you know children to be involved in the story. Um, is I picked "Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus" by Mo oh. Willems, but um, there's a whole bunch of those pigeon stories. Uh, and Mo, there's just some, those books are hilarious. That pigeon is an increase, one of the most vivid characters in my literary life. Um, but you know, making sure that the you know the children don't let the children don't let the pigeon drive the bus is uh, is is fantastic. Um, and then my slightly controversial one, because we I've chosen a book by Jackie French, but it's not Diary of a Wombat, because to be honest, and my wife Claire is the only person who will back me up on this, I can't stand Diary of a Wombat. I really dislike ah, reading okay. it. There's, there's something about the structure of how it's put together. I get the comedy around it. I, I like the character of the wombat, but I really don't like... I don't find it easy to read to a child. Like the the diary format 
um, and the way the wombat sort of speaks in the diary form, but I just find clunky and I, I don't find it flows. I don't enjoy the process of reading it, but I think I'm like the only person in the world, <laughs> with the exception of my wife, who who um, who just who just can't get into it. And, and it, bizarrely, we've got like four copies of it because it came out at that time. Our children were young at the time. That oh, book was the most popular no, book in the world. <laughs> we've got, we had, we had a hard, we had like a hard back, like the, the board book version of it. We had the normal version of it. Someone got us the huge giant library version of it, which I think I donated to some center. But, um, but I love Jackie French and I love my favorite of hers is Josephine wants to dance with the kangaroo uh, who yes. wants to do the, the ballet. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that story. Yeah. Well, the thing is that you don't have to love every book by that author. That's true. I think that's okay because I do love some Mem Fox books, but some I'm just kind of like, mm, yeah, okay. She has written so, a lot. There has to be a miss in there yeah. occasionally. Yeah, so that, that's okay. I don't think you need to apologise for that, and I think it's wonderful, your recommendation. <laughs> well, thank you, Leanne. Well, I think, look, I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty strong list of books to start off the the collection for – for any early education service. But, um, you know, if you're listening to this, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, you know, with your own suggestions. I think there's probably nothing I would love more to get to get, to get a big list of wonderful Yeah, and I, I think even just by the way that we have talked about these tonight, obviously there's been a strong um, kind of connection with our own families over these books. And I think that that's what makes books so special is that they are about connection, aren't they? And they are about relationships and the relationship that you have with that book as well even your jackie french story is <laughs> like you've got a bad relationship with that's okay <laughs> that's right <laughs> i, I want to break up with diary of a wombat <laughs> <laughs> i just can't get I out of it i want to mention um an adult recommendation oh yes please yes yeah, so i um i recently bought this book and some people will have it and it's Sean Tan's Tales from the Inner City. Oh, lovely. I Sean Tan, I worship the ground, Sean Tan. Yeah, awesome. and this is like incredible, this book. And there's tw- 25 stories in there and it's talking about, it really is like stories about animals and humans and coexisting and the sort of, I don't know, the sort of shit people... <laughs> 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 but this the sort of the sort of stuff that humans do and that animals and how animals are so much better than us. <laughs> but it's there's a couple of little things here which it, it's just an incredible book to look at. It's absolutely beautiful. And this is one about um dogs. This is a little poem about dogs. One day I threw my stick at you. You brought it back. My hand touched your ear. Your nose touched the back of my knee. Then we were walking side by side as it had always, as if it had always been this way. That's That's beautiful, isn't it? And I think you really, if you're a dog person, which, you know, many people are, that you can sort of feel that dog there. Yeah. And this is one of my other favourite bits is, your money is meaningless to us, said the bears. You grasp economics with the same clawless paws you use for fumbling justice. <laughs> oh, I love that. So that gives you a bit of an insight. I want that on my you. wall. Yeah, I know. I know. There's so many, like, incredible moments. And the bears are better than all of us, let me tell you. And so there's just that. that is a, if you want to give yourself a bit of a treat, then buy that book. But. 
maybe don't drink while you read it because <laughs> <laughs> you might end up being sad. But I think what a book like this that Sean Tan, you know, he produces so many beautiful books, but I think what books give you is an insight into the most incredible creativity and minds of people who are really just trying to work out life. Yeah. And I think that, you know, bizarrely, I think people would probably maybe look down on children's picture books and, and sort of see them as, you know, maybe a lesser form of literature. But I think children's books actually, and Sean Tan's a fantastic example, he's able to use that there's so that the fact there's so much less restrictions on what those books can be, that they can tell stories about talking animals and um, talking clouds and all those different kind of things to tell, you know, actually far more stories than we we sort of get when we're we're older, I think it's actually, you know, a, 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 one of the best ways to talk about human life and human experience and, you know, what it means to be kind to each other and what it means when people are not kind to each other. I actually think it's one of the best mediums to do that, full stop. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, some of his previous books, like The Arrival and, you know, they these expose the best of us and the worst of us. And I, I think what a genius to be able to do that. Absolutely. Well, I can't think of a better way to leave the episode than just singing Sean Tan's praises, but also singing the praises of children's picture books in general. It was really a lot of fun to go through the through this uh, this stocking this new centre with our with our Pixley and with you. I know. Let's just like we've got two options here. Yeah. Liam, we can open a bookshop. Or yep. we can open an early childhood setting. <laughs> I know which one is less stressful from a regulatory perspective. So I might, uh, you find a spot and I'll bring the books. Okay, that's great. <laughs> You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.